Good morning, everyone. I hope, uh, I hope that you're all in good form. Um, great to see a load of faces in front of me, even though they are masked, um, most of whom I know, I think, at this stage. Um, yeah, just welcome this morning to uh, Galway City Baptist Church. And um, as we look over um, this small passage, um, let us all be enriched by it. I know when I first received it from, from Jason, I said, oh, four verses, handy. <laughs> and as the weeks were going on, I was tearing my hair out. Um, but it's, it's, it's a great passage. Um, we've, we've looked now. It's, it actually marks the end of a big, of a, of a thematic block, chapters 9 to 11, which in turn marked the end of 1 to 8. So if we just cast our eyes over quickly before we pray, it might help us to remind ourselves about all that Paul has been speaking about up to now. We can see uh, in chapters 1 to 8, he laid out sort of the bad news initially that we are all sinners and no one is righteous before a holy God. Um, we only deserve judgment and strict judgment at that, eternal separation from God. Um, the self-esteem brigade do not like this part of the gospel. Um, it's very negative. It's very raw. But it's the truth. We believe that, don't we? Um, and then we have those marvelous verses at the end of chapter 3, 22, 23. But now a righteousness apart from the law has been manifested. And that is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And from there onwards, then Paul opens up a door of wonder to us, where he says that we have died, that Christ has died for our sins and raised for our justification. He explains that we're re because we're united with Christ in death, we'll be united with Christ in his resurrection. And then he goes on in 7 and 8 to say that we're not under sort of bondage to the law anymore. We're now free and we live under the Spirit. And then in chapters 9 and 11, uh, what we've just finished up with, or what we are going to finish up with today, Paul is telling us that God has arranged salvation history to maximize his glory, showing mercy both to Jews and Gentiles at the appointed times. So it's a great picture of what God is doing. It's a wonderfully deep picture. And it's only with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul and, and we in any part can understand it. So before we delve into it, let's, let's pray. Father God, um, we're so thankful that uh, you have given us in some small measure a bit of light that we can throw on these verses and indeed throw on your gospel. Um, that the Holy Spirit has invaded our lives and shown us some wonderful truths. Uh, not all the details, but certainly enough to give us great courage to give us great hope, and to give us great peace with you, Lord. Uh, Father, I suppose if we lived a thousand lifetimes, we wouldn't plumb the depths of your gospel. Um, all we would do is we'd be gobsmacked as time wore on with the marvels of it, the wonders of it, the complexity of it, and yet the simpleness of it. Father, open our eyes today to appreciate uh, your immensity, uh, your power, your awesomeness, but also, Father, help us to open our eyes to your compassion and your gentleness and your tenderness and your lowliness. And these things, Father, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. I'm sure that many of you in this room have at some stage maybe stood on top of the Cliffs of Moher. Um, I have, not too many times for an Irish guy, actually, probably only twice, but the two occasions I was there, it was before the Health and Safety Brigade went mad, and stopped you from actually going up to the edge and looking over. But I have looked over cliffs before and out in the Iron Islands as well. And 
for some strange reason, they do one thing to me. They make me feel very small. Um, especially when I look at the Cliffs of Moher and you look down and you've got the thundering surf, the thundering waves blasting the rocks, and you can see large angular blocks of rocks that have been rounded over the millennia by, by the power of the waves. And it makes, me, it makes me wonder, you know, as I look out and all I see is just this huge vast expanse, and then I know on the other side of that is America, and then on the other side of that there's another huge big thundering ocean, the Pacific, and it comes around by the back door in Dublin again. <laughs> So it makes me feel, even though I see it with my physical eyes, I can't quite comprehend it. I can't quite comprehend the depth of it. And it makes me feel very insignificant, very fragile and very small. Now, other people are nuts enough to look at something like that and want to jump off it. So, so who am I to talk about feeling humble and small when I'm faced with, 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 uh, with, with danger, basically? But I think Paul feels a little bit like I would in this passage even though Paul didn't understand the depths of God's plan, the Holy Spirit has revealed enough to him that he can comprehend the rough outline of it. And he's only capable of doing one thing, throwing up his hands in the air and saying, glory be to God at the end of it, and looking for an amen from everyone. He starts off in verse 33 with, oh, the depth of the riches, which in effect means greatness, and wisdom and knowledge of God. That's what my ESV says. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it's slightly different. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, when I was reading uh, the commentaries for this, I was a bit confused because some were saying there was three things there, riches, knowledge, and wisdom. Some were saying there was two things there, just the riches of the wisdom and knowledge. And some were saying there's just one thing there. It's just the riches of the wisdom and knowledge were to take them as one. So... Only God knows exactly what's at the bottom of those verses, but the, very, or the, the basic gist of it is that God is wise, God is knowledgeable, there is considerable overlap, while they are individual as well. And so great is the depth of his knowledge and the depth of his wisdom that no one can plummet. His knowledge in this particular context doesn't just mean that he foresees everything because he's able to look back in eternity and forward in eternity, but it means that not only does he foresee what's going to happen and what's happened, He's actually determined it. And really, if we're humble, we have to say, look, you're God. As creator, it's your right to be ruler as well. God always makes the right decisions, even though sometimes in our lives we mightn't exactly see it that way. Even as Dara spoke this morning about the ups and downs of, 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 of everyone's lives, be they Christians or unchristian, we do have peaks and troughs in our lives. We have delights and we have tragedies. We have times of happiness and times of sadness. And sometimes when we're going through struggles as Christians, we think, you know, why can't God just take this problem away from us? Why can't he just do this or do that? Why do I have to do things that way? I, I just don't see any sense in it. Fill in the blank. We've all been there, and we will always be there in the future as well. And sometimes we think in times like these, God, have you forgotten me? It's funny because we think of God sometimes as being this figure who's so busy going about the business of running the world that sometimes we think he's forgotten little old me, <laughs> as if God was limited in that way of operation. It says in Scripture that he's counted the hairs on our heads, every one of us. It doesn't mean that he's actually done that. It just means that he's, he's the God of big things, but he's also the God of small things. God's mind, you see, is so bright and his knowledge is so deep that there's no hope that mere mortals like us, 
Nor people who have had extra revelation, perhaps like Joseph and Abraham and Paul himself, could ever understand its depths. Paul then adds in the second part of this verse, again there's overlap here between ways and judgments. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There's a nice image here of, of sort of a hound dog that cannot keep up or cannot find the scent of God's judgments and God's ways. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Only God understands it. It goes to and it goes fro. It goes here, it goes there. Even the hound dog with his acute smell can't figure out where God is going next. Paul then moves on to ask three rhetorical questions that don't demand any answer, of course. And he takes us to two Old Testament proof texts to show us about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And the first place he brings us is Isaiah. He, we read in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Again, for who has known the mind of the, of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Well, the answer is, to those two questions, no one. It's absurd, isn't it, to think that us as finite human beings who have our weaknesses and our foibles, and if we're honest, we admit them to ourselves and to others, it's absurd to think that we in any way can counsel or offer up any advice to God. And yet there's a load of people in the world who try to do it, isn't there? There's no shortage of opinion on what God should do or how God should run his world. Now, these people ultimately will be shown to be fools, I think, whether in this life or the next. But it's interesting that Paul takes us to Isaiah 40 here. Remember, what was happening when Isaiah was writing? Israel were in exile. In chapter 40, we see that they're in Babylon. They've been whisked away. They've been absolutely downtrodden, whisked away as hostages up to Babylon, that barbaric kind of city-state. Their temple has been destroyed. Their beloved Jerusalem is razed to the ground. The walls are razed. Their mighty line of kings seemingly has come to an end. There's no hope. There's only a hot mixture of very poor people left in, in, in Israel to make sure the wild animals and the weeds won't grow up. And there we have a people up in Babylon looking back at the wonders and the privileges they had. God's own people who showed great favor to them. And they're now destitute, slaves in Babylon. And they're complaining like mad. If you want to turn to Isaiah 40, we'll see. Why do you complain, Jacob? This is Isaiah speaking to his people. <clears throat> Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Exactly the same thing that we might say in our times of trouble. Have you forgotten me, Lord? Why is this happening to me? You used to favor me. Not anymore. Have you forgotten me? You see, their infinite, their finite understanding couldn't figure out what was happening. So they came to the wrong conclusion that God was not in control anymore. But he is. We know this. Scripture speaks to us every morning in this, or every Sunday morning in this church that God is in control. God knows exactly what's going on. We must wait and trust on him. But it's easier said than done. The Babylonians were such a super power that the Israelites didn't see any hope in ever being released from their captivity. And yet God is still in control. You can just imagine if we were one of the Israelites up there. Imagine the conversations in our prayer we'd be having with God. We might be saying, Lord, didn't you call us the apple of your eye? Didn't you promise never to forsake us? 
What's going on? We're an embarrassment to the nations. We're up here, the most powerful nation in the area at once, prisoners and slaves to this despot, Nebuchadnezzar, and his barbaric state. What's going on? Some might even have been thinking in error, you know what, if only we had a temple, we could offer something to God. Perhaps then he would show us favor again and restore us. But we don't even have a temple. But if we go on to verse 35, we see that even that frame of thought does not work with our God. Verse 35 reads, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? I suppose us living in this country and most countries, we, we know the brown envelope syndrome. Well, you cannot slip a brown envelope to God with a wink of the eye and whisper to him to remember us later at a future time. It just doesn't work. In fact, we can't give God anything, Paul says. We owe him nothing. We owe him everything. He owes us absolutely nothing. We cannot teach him. We cannot counsel him in any matter, even the most insignificant matter. We are too limited. He teaches us if we're humble enough to acknowledge it. This particular verse, verse 35, is the second Old Testament proof text that Paul takes us with to. Um, it's the book of Job. Again, scholars um, debate this, but the book of Job is all about, um, of course, as we know, this very, very rich, privileged man in the Middle East who had probably the best donkeys, sheep, and goats that anyone could buy in those days. He had a wonderful family, a load of children, a multitude of riches, and then one day, literally overnight, it was all taken away from him. He was severely tested. No blessings, they ended straight off. How did he react? You would think that a man who was so blessed with riches and who had such a close walk with the Lord would have a soft heart and cut the Lord some, some slack and let him be Lord. But we find that he does the same thing what Babylon does. He starts complaining and grumbling. And very quickly he forgets some of those wonderful traits and characters of God. We can see, remember, God has to address this problem of Job. Job complains, and complaining in itself in prayer, we do it all the time ourselves, and God doesn't mind complaining. God doesn't mind us contending with him, questioning him in our prayer. And most of our heartfelt prayers, when we came up off our knees and we felt that the Lord had done business with us, it came when we poured out our heart to him, when our heart was broken in some way, when perhaps we were impatient or, or complaining to him. And then in prayer we received solace, we received peace. God doesn't want our prayers perhaps to be uh, aloof, following a formula. He likes people contending with him. He wrestled with Jacob till Jacob got the blessing. And with Job, Job wrestled mightily with the Lord. But he had to check Job because Je Job was coming up with an a wrong conclusion. Because he reckoned that the situation in his life was so unjust, he naturally jumped to the conclusion, well, God mustn't be wise then. And God had to sit him down and rebuke him. And we see in chapter 40 of Job, verse 1 to 2, imagine God asking you this question. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, go on, let him answer it. Boy, wouldn't we shake in our shoes if God asked us that question? Job did as well. He gave the right answer, thankfully. In verses 3 to 5, he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, 
I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but, but I proceed no further. Job was humbled. It was the right answer. The reason why Job was humbled was that God had reminded him of, of his beauty and his power and his majesty as seen in creation. And God said, look, Job, it's, it's all my handiwork. The behemoth, look how mighty a creature he is. I made him, Job. I made the rain, I made the thunder, I made the snow, I made the mountains, the oceans. I made it all, Job. It's all my handiwork. And if I made it, surely, Job, you'd think that you would think that I could manage it as well. You can't manage it, Job. I can. Paul pursues this theme of creator in the next verse. We read in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul, is our, Paul says that God is the source, he's the means, and he's the end of all things. Commentator John Stott puts it very nicely. We might remember it better. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and he's everything else in between as well. So we might look around today, and we can see that the creation has fallen. We can see that our relationships are broken. We can see that things are not intended as God designed it. But all the same, if we're honest, and if we have searching eyes, we can see, even the most hard heart, that God has left us clues of his existence and of his character. We can see the vastness of space, the beauty of a sunset, the, the depth of the oceans, the wonders of love. Paul so delights in God's sovereignty, so delights in God's wisdom and character and judgment, that he breaks out in adoration and he calls for God to be glorified. In the second part he says, to him be glory forever, he says, amen. His glory is deserved because he is holy. Now, holy sometimes, when it's bandied around by Christians, can, can appear to be this kind of very, kind of covers a multitude of sins, isn't it? It's a kind of a hard, slippery word sometimes to, to pin down. Holy is just set apart. It's different, sanctified, holy. We're called holy. We're called to be saints. Now, tell that to the outside world that I'm a saint or you're a saint, and they'll scoff. <laughs> but we are called to be holy, different, sanctified, set apart, as God is. There is no one else like God. He is totally different. Let's go back to Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? Will preached on this out in Furbo a couple of weeks ago. It was wonderful. Where Isaiah had this vision of God up on his throne in the heavenlies. And we see that he was high and he was lifted up. And the train of his robe. In other words, his robe wasn't just from here to the door or from here to the car park long. It was actually covering, filling the whole temple. Just like in another part of scripture, it says that God fills the whole world. What were the seraphim singing? They were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world, or the whole earth, is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Three times, a symbol of perfection and fullness. Nothing lacking. God is holy, but he's holy and holy. And Isaiah could only cry out, Woe is me, he said, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst, he said, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is often translated the Lord Almighty. The Lord of hosts. This idea of, of a Lord of, 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 of a huge army. 
Now this was a man who was so humbled by the awfulness of God that he, he could only utter the proper response. It's the same response that a sinner can only do in front of a holy God. When sinners humble themselves in front of the holy or in front of an almighty God, when they see their own lacking compared to the holiness of God, God stands ready to forgive. Remember then what happened to Isaiah when he uttered this cry of, of, of horror. One of the seraphim, it says, flew out with one of the coals from the altar on the day of atonement. And he touched Isaiah's lips with it, which really was a figure of speech for touching Isaiah's life. And he said, see, this has touched your lips, the seraphim said. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's a great picture of God's almighty presence on the throne. But sometimes when we look at these terms, especially in a passage like this in Romans, where it's talking about the awesomeness of God, and we see terms like, are terms alluded to like almighty, creator, ruler, glorious. It might sound that the God is a, is a little distant, a little cold from us, a little aloof, that we could never really have any fellowship or keep any company with this Lord. After all, he is almighty and I am not. He's glorious and I am not. But nothing could be further from the truth. We get a, another picture of God's glory, a different, a different angle to it in Exodus 33. Remember in Exodus 33 when Moses was complimented or praised by God. And then Moses says, you know, Lord, will you show me your glory? How did the Lord respond? He said, I will cause my goodness, he said, to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. He said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Does that sound like a stodgy, cold, aloof God? God's glory, you see, is tied up with his goodness, his mercy and his compassion. He's not distant. He's not sort of a distant, aloof, self-loving God that's just waiting for his minion slaves to heap adoration onto him. He's not like that at all. He delights in sharing. He delights in showing goodness. He delights in showing mercy. He delights in being compassionate. He's not a sort of the megalomaniac, cruel God of the Old Testament like some people say they kind of prefer the nice, warmer version in the New Testament, Jesus. How's Jesus described in Matthew 11? His heart is described as lowly, full of compassion. The same God as the Old Testament God. Same God. Same spirit. And why wouldn't our God love to show and delight to show goodness and mercy and compassion? He is, after all, in the very beginning, his very nature is love. And love can only be love if, if he shares it. He delights in sharing mercy and showing mercy to repentant sinners. Some of us here have experienced that. When sinners humble themselves before a holy God, he's ready to show mercy, just like the prodigal son. Remember, what was the first thing that the prodigal son saw when he turned around? His father facing him, ready to forgive. He hadn't forgotten Israel up in Babylon either. Even though they were rebellious, they humbled themselves. And how did he respond? Listen to the tenderness in these verses. Comfort, comfort my people, he says in Isaiah 40, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and proclaim to her that her hard service has been paid for, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. All he wanted from Israel was their trust. That's all they could offer him. They couldn't offer him any more. All he wanted was for them to let him be God. He had not forgotten Job either. He restored Job and he blessed him much more mightily even than he was in the beginning. He was willing and he was able and all God wanted was for Job to trust him. And as we look at ourselves today and anyone listening to this, he's listening to this on the internet, he is willing and able to restore sinners as well today. These things didn't happen just in old times. They're just as alive and active today, God, in his ministry of forgiveness as he was then. Just as the seraphim took the coal from the altar and he put it on Isaiah, he was purified. So he does it with us. And that coal that he took off the altar and, altar and put on Isaiah's lips really is a picture of the ultimate sacrifice. Not animals like goats and sheep, but a person, Christ. Christ has taken the place of all those Old Testament sacrifices. He's the ultimate sacrifice, God himself sacrificing him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Paul says, All the glory be to God. Amen. For those who trusted in Christ in this room, there is nothing that we can pay him. There's nothing that we can repay him, that we can offer him. Nothing. Either in our lives or abstract things like counseling or giving him advice, we can't offer anything. Our right standing with God is a free gift, just as it was when God dealt with, the Babel, with Israel and Babylonia, just as it was when God dealt with Job. He deals the same way with people today. We, like Paul, can only do one thing when we read verses like this, when we can look back at Old Testament proofs of how he dealt with sinners. We can only marvel at the mind of God. We can only marvel at his forgiveness and his mercy and at his compassion. John Piper says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That's the only thing we can give him. That's the only thing that he delights in, that we rest in him and trust him and let him get on with the business of being God. It's easier said than done, but that's what he strives for. Psalm 116, verses 12 to 13, put it well. They say, What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Now, for believers, um, when we read Psalm 111 earlier, we saw that word, the fear of God. And the fear of God to an unrepentant sinner is a physical fear of the judgment day, an uneasiness at what is to come, if people are honest enough to actually acknowledge that this particular judgment day is to come. It puts the fear of God in you. But for someone who already has trusted in the Lord, the fear of God is something entirely different. It's a peace and it's a joy of resting in God. It's a deep love for what God has done and a deep love for God. But if these verses put the first type of fear of the Lord in you, make you uneasy. Maybe that's God is showing you something this morning as you read these verses. Maybe he's showing you the true seriousness of your sin. Maybe he's showing you the gap between 
what you think is your righteousness and his supreme holiness and saying, look, this gap is too big for you to bridge. You're going to have to trust me. Let's end with Isaiah as well, since we've been so, so, um, so deep in them all morning. Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Have you gone through your life not being satisfied, trying every sort of pop psychology book, maybe in self-help gurus that are out there looking for various truths? Well, Isaiah some says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Our God is the source of all forgiveness, all compassion, all rest and all peace. Come to him. And then, as Paul does, the only thing we can do is let us give him glory. Let's pray. Father God, um, we don't understand half of what's going on around us when it comes to your providence and the way you're working in this world. Um, Lord, sometimes in our lives we like to project ourselves as being knowledgeable and being wise and, and probably, undoubtedly, knowing more than we do. Lord, continue to humble us uh, by showing us your holiness. Um, continue to encourage us to see your character as we read your word, as we pray to you, uh, as we wrestle with things, Lord, which are oftentimes hard and stressful in our lives. Um, Lord, thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you're doing in us, even though sometimes it feels painfully slow. We know you're at work in us, Lord. We know we can marvel at your words and get great encouragement that you're speaking to us through them. Father, keep us, um, keep us on that straight road, Lord. Um, keep us humble. Uh, keep us a, a people who are compassionate as well and who reflect in some way, Father, your character because we are, after all, made in your image. Help us to reflect your love, Lord. Help us to be a sharing, kind people as well, Father. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.